I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. And in case you're wondering, uh, this is not a Christmas message. We will take care of that on Christmas Eve. Galatians chapter 1. Be reading from verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 10. Paul is given a bit of an itinerary of his his travels and his ministry. We jump in verse 18 of chapter 1. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing. I was eager to do. Let us pray. Father, would you take this word, your very word, help us to understand it, abide by it, believe it. Lord, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel needs to be defended. We should be no, under no illusions that there will not be attacks against the gospel. It is, in fact, the main target in this world by our arch enemy. We often distract ourselves when we think that the main targets in our world or the main enemies in our world are physical whether it be a virus or an army or a political party, 
Those are significant and not to be ignored. But we have to realize there is an enemy more primary than those. The beginning of the Bible is exceptionally important. The book of Genesis is important for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons it is important is because it lays for us a foundation for understanding the unfolding of the rest of Scripture and really the rest of God's working in this world. The beginning of the Bible, in the very opening chapters of Genesis, we find man, God, and a deceiver. On the battlefield, over the accomplishment of God's plans and purposes, we find that there is an enemy and a target that's already been set. In the very beginning, Satan is set to dismantling God's good purposes for humankind. God created man and woman, and they were very good, and from the very outset, Satan, the deceiver, comes and spreads lies to them and leads them into rebellion against God. Disrupting what it would seem to us, God's purpose for man, and yet we know that God's will cannot be thwarted, and so we see the unfolding now of God's redemptive plan over the course of history to restore fallen mankind to a right relationship with himself. But we must not think that Satan's plans have altered. He is still out to disrupt and dismantle as much as possible. And we see his prowling throughout Scripture. As we see the progress of God's redemptive plan unfold throughout the pages of Scripture, we see the attacks of the enemy are not too far behind. Paul, the apostle who wrote the book of Galatians, was acquainted with the battle that he fought. He said that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities. He's referring to Satan and his demons. When Paul is seeking to minister to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul desires to come to them, but he says, Satan hindered us. He does not think Satan to be this figment of his imagination, a mythical creature. He finds him to be a real enemy. The primary way that Satan works his enmity towards God and towards man is the way that he's always been doing it through lies and deception. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, as he notes his opposition to the gospel, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So we should not be surprised that while Satan wreaks his havoc all over the world, the primary place that he seeks to beguile and deceive is in and surrounding the central place of God's working and the central place of God's working right now in this world is the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we should expect that, in a sense, Satan has an automatic machine gun of lies shooting at the gospel. He's trying to take it out. Paul 
as he writes to the Galatians, is defending the gospel. The passage of scripture that we just read is him taking up pen against the lies of the enemy. I think we can understand that Paul sees ultimately the deceiver behind this because he calls the people that he is fighting against false brothers. And Paul is not ignorant to consider that they just came out of nowhere. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in or smuggled in, he recognizes there's a conspiracy behind this. There is a conspiracy to bring in people who claim to be Christians into the true church in order to bring deception among them. And Paul understands that the primary target of the attacks from the false brothers or false apostles or false teachers or false prophets ultimately come from the deceiver and are aimed at the gospel. This is why so much of the New Testament is geared towards defending the truth of the gospel. The enemy from the very start was out to try to smash and destroy this little movement that that began in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. Paul recognizes false brothers among the true Christians, and he recognizes that they come bringing lies. It would be nice if the lies had a big red warning sign surrounding them. But Satan is good at what he does. And the lies look good. The lies sound good. And sometimes Satan even uses the Bible for his lies. It looks good and it looks reasonable, but we find from the book of Galatians that we need God's wisdom to cut through those lies and be able to discern when they are lies and when the truth of the gospel is at stake. Lies can come from nice and winsome people. Lies can come from smart and carefully worded people. But they can still be lies. And so Paul has no problem calling these men of whose character we really know nothing about. We don't know whether they were nice or mean, but he calls them false because they bring with them lies. And the primary target of their attack is the very gospel that Paul proclaims. And so we look at this text that really recounts to us some historical details that may not on the surface be of interest to you, but at the core is Paul taking up pen and paper to defend the gospel that he gave his life towards. And so we look at this text to see that the gospel needs to be defended and preserved. Paul is doing this, he says in chapter 2, verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The original audience, of course, is the Galatians, but I think we can accept that the whole Defense of the gospel serves the whole church throughout all of church history, and so we benefit from what happened almost 2,000 years ago as well, as the gospel was preserved for us. So what I'd like to do is walk through this defense of the gospel, or defense of Paul's preaching of the gospel, and just explain what's going on here for a few moments, and then we'll try to step back and take some Uh, application, some lessons from this. So bear with us as we kind of dig down into Paul's itinerary for a little bit. We'll do 
a bit of a Bible study and try to lay some foundation here for what's going on as Paul gives his background of his travels with the Galatians. Let me set this up with a little background. Before Jesus returned to heaven, he said to his disciples in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is Jesus marching orders to the disciples. You know this verse if you've been around the Bible very long. You know how the progress of the gospel works. The gospel was preached in Jerusalem. It spread out to Judea, spread out to Samaria, and its intent was to go to the very ends of the earth. The gospel was to radiate throughout the world to the very corners of the earth. But there's trouble at each step. Every time the gospel in a sense, breaks a new barrier. You see that there's some sort of barrier that need, it needs to break through and some opposition to it. If you look back, you can do a little bit of a survey with me in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, we see the gospel come to the, uh, Jerusalem. The gospel's being preached, and many people are being saved, but we find in chapter 4 of Acts, verse 1, that there's opposition it was as they, the disciples, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. At the very start of the propagation of the gospel, there's opposition, and this time it comes through the Jewish leaders. The Sanhedrin, they see the disciples preaching and they try to put a stop to it and they arrest them. And again, we can't just see the, the superficial reality here. We take a step back and we understand that the enemy is ultimately the great deceiver who is seeking to thwart the progress of the gospel by silencing the very advocates of the gospel. As the gospel moves out into another region, we see a similar event happen. Acts chapter 8. The gospel is being preached among the Samaritans. And many people are believing, and among, one of the, among them, in verse 18, is a man named Simon the magician. In Acts 8, verse 18, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. You see someone there trying to infiltrate the ranks of the church, thinking that they can buy the gift of God with money and distribute it at their will. This would have caused great havoc among the church if they see this man who bought the Spirit effectively with money, now laying on hands, for profit. This is a great danger to the church, and Peter snuffs it out and recognizes that they, this man has neither part nor lot in this matter and calls him to repent. And next, the gospel spreads out to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches to the, the Gentile Cornelius, and he and his household believe. And then in chapter 11, 
After this has happened, verse 1, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. This mind-blowing new epic of salvation history has happened where Gentile and his family have believed and received the gift of the Spirit from God. And the response that Peter gets, criticism. You ate with them? The sound might sound mild, but it has massive implications for what the gospel is and does. And this begins the unfolding of a debate that was going to last for a number of years in the church about the relationship between the Gentiles and the gospel and the Jews. And really at the focus of it is what did Christ accomplish at the cross? What did he do there? And Paul's going to begin to get into that in Galatians, but for now just notice that at each step, there's some hindrance to the progress of the gospel. Why is that? because there's an enemy to the gospel at each step trying to thwart its advance. It can be from a variety of ways. It could be arrest. It could be some imposter coming into the ranks of the church. It could be criticism from those who profess to believe. But at each step, there is an enemy against the gospel. And now as this massive wall is broken down and the Gentiles now get the gospel, we're going to see a massive Opposition to the Gentiles receiving the gospel. Until this time, it seemed that the Jews who accepted Jesus were content to embrace Jesus and, in a sense, add Christ to their traditions. They would keep circumcision. They would keep the washings of hands. They would keep the dietary regulations. They would keep all of their laws and rules And now they think, as the gospel goes to the Gentiles, they think, well, the Gentiles can have the gospel too, but they also need all of our traditions too. And this gets to be formalized in kind of a codified teaching, and that's what's coming to the regions of Galatia and really throughout all the Gentile world as the gospel begins to break down these barriers of the Gentiles And this new dynamic of Gentiles coming to faith is threatening the traditions that have always been held up. And so from Acts chapter 11 until Acts 15, below the surface of the text, there is this tension going on about what is happening with the Gentiles receiving the gospel. Do they just receive it and they're good to go? Or do they also need to stop eating pork? And do they need to be circumcised? It's a big question. And it's a question that relates to the gospel. And there were people who were going out from Jerusalem teaching these new Gentile converts, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law. And this debate reaches a fever pitch in Acts chapter 15, one of the most important chapters in your Bible. It says in Acts 15 verse 1, Some men came down from Judea 
and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That would be heartbreaking. If you've heard that believing in Jesus forgives your sins, and then you're told that's not good enough, you also have to be circumcised. Your brain is going to be churning. Okay, what's the truth here? Am I saved by Jesus? Or am I saved by Jesus and circumcision? This is a gospel issue, and that's why Paul is so vehement to defend the gospel in the face of this teaching. And in Acts chapter 15, there's a council that's convened to discuss this issue about the relationship between the Gentiles and the gospel. Because people were saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Back to Galatians. We find Galatians is happening between Acts 11 and Acts 15. Acts 15 most likely hasn't happened yet. And Paul is fighting this, this battle about the relationship between Gentiles and the law, between the gospel and doing something to be saved. And the Galatians are being taught that they need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul tells them, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul sees black and white here. He says, you can be circumcised, but just know that if you're going to keep the law, you've got to keep all of it, and that's the way you're going to be saved. Or you can accept Jesus. And if you accept Jesus, that's the way you're going to be saved. But you can't have both of them mashed together because then you really have neither. So Paul defends this gospel of Jesus Christ that is given to us, the gospel of grace, the truth of the gospel. And in the book of Galatians, he's writing to a church that's being inundated with lies Deception that sound good, that use biblical language, circumcision, and law, and righteousness, and Christ, but he uses them together in the wrong order. And Paul has to go about the work of untangling these deceptions and helping the Galatians see what the truth is. And we see that the gospel is so crucial, is so important, that it is worth defending. That's why Paul spends a good chunk of his letter defending the gospel. Let me just lay out to you what Paul is arguing here now as we get back to Galatians. What Paul is saying. Paul is basically saying, chapter 1, verse 11, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. If you were to put the two side by side, you have the one group saying, be circumcised and have Jesus to be saved, and Paul says, just have Jesus. And Paul is saying, one of these is man-made, and you have to figure out which. 
Actually, you don't have to figure it out. I'm going to tell you. It's this one. And Paul goes through and explains why his gospel is not man-made. The reason is not man-made is because it was given to him by revelation. And one of the ways that he's trying to help the Galatians see that it was given to him by revelation is that no one taught him this gospel. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If Paul was taught the gospel, if if Paul was taught by man the gospel, he would have been taught by those at Jerusalem. That's where the gospel started. That's where he would have gotten his authority as apostle. That's where he would have been sent out and commissioned. And so Paul is letting the Galatians know that he had very little contact with Jerusalem. And that's one of the ways they can know that his gospel is not really Jerusalem's gospel. It's God's gospel. So he goes in verse 18 and says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. This is the first time since Paul was radically converted on the road to Damascus that he goes to Jerusalem. Three years. He had been in Arabia, he had been in Damascus, but he had not gone to Jerusalem yet. This is a substantial argument that the gospel he received was a gospel that he received by revelation, not man's teaching. And he says that he went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and he stayed with him 15 days, about two weeks. It's not a whole lot of time. You can get to know each other a bit, you can get acquainted, and as one theologian said, certainly they weren't talking about the weather But it's further proof that Paul was not primarily going there to be taught by Peter, but just to get to know him. And the only other apostle that he met was James, the Lord's brother, the one who wrote the book of James. Paul is so bent on getting the Galatians to understand this point that he says in verse 20, what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. This is a serious argument for him in the credibility of the gospel that he preached. And after those 15 days in Jerusalem, he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, north of Israel. And he says that I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only thing that they were hearing said was that the one who used to persecute the church is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And so Paul's left Jerusalem, he's left Judea, and really the only relationship he has with the churches in that area is that they know about him, and they know that he is now preaching the very thing that he tried to destroy at one point. In other words, there's no real animosity between Jerusalem and Paul. The churches recognize that Paul is doing a good work, and they glorify God because of what he's doing. That helps Paul let the Galatians know that the gospel that he's preaching is not fundamentally at odds with what Jerusalem originally had been preaching. He goes on in chapter 2 and begins to lay out more of his itinerary. He says in verse 1, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, 
in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now about 14 years after Paul's conversion, this is his second trip to Jerusalem. It's been a long time, and he brings Barnabas and Titus, and he makes sure to let the Galatians know that he goes because of a revelation. He wasn't summoned there by the apostles. He wasn't summoned by Jerusalem that he needed to come and kind of have an uh, after-class meeting with the teacher because of the bad things that he was saying. He went up there because there was a revelation that was made, and so he went. This visit is most likely found in Acts chapter 11 during a time of famine, and he brought some relief to the churches in Jerusalem. But he goes... He says, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. I don't think that Paul is now questioning whether he's been preaching the right gospel all along. Paul's too convinced of the gospel to think that he's going to go to Jerusalem and find out that, wait a second, I've, been, I've got it wrong all along. I need to change my message. That'd be completely contradictory to the point that Paul's making He's checking to see if Jerusalem is preaching the same gospel that he is. That's what he's doing. He's so convinced that the gospel that he preaches is true that he goes to the place where the gospel, in a sense, originated from to see if they're preaching the same thing that he is. And if he finds that they are deviating from the gospel then it's going to make his job a lot harder because all of the churches now are going to hear this teaching that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And he's going to have to go back and undo all of this and correct it, and it may make his work just in vain, and the churches go up in a puff of smoke. But Paul was clever. He brought a test case. He brought a Gentile with him, Titus. He brings them to Jerusalem. I don't think this was an accident. I think Paul has a strategy here. He brings along this Gentile Titus in the place where if anyone is going to get circumcised, it's going to be a Gentile who is proclaiming Christ. He brings him there. And it says in verse 3, but even Titus who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And in that moment, it seems like Paul's victorious. Paul's gospel matches the gospel at Jerusalem. They agree. And so Paul now can say to the Galatians, anything that you hear coming out of Jerusalem that is different from this is some other people. And that's why Paul says in verse 4, yet because of false brothers... Not because of the true apostles, not because of the true disciples in Jerusalem, but because of false brothers who were smuggled in, quite literally, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So as Paul has these meetings with the apostles there and the disciples, there are false brothers who are preaching Christ and law, Christ and circumcision. They're spying out the freedom that people have in Christ, the freedom from the curse of the law, freedom from bondage to sin. 
And Paul says, we did not yield to them, even for a moment. And the reason is to preserve the truth of the gospel. The conclusion of his time in Jerusalem is in verse 7. They saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. No, it's not talking about two different gospels. It's just talking about two different groups that need to get the gospel. And they see that Paul was commissioned by Christ to go to the uncircumcised and preach the gospel. And he notes in verse 8 that the one who was working through Peter was the same one working through Paul And James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So the end of the story is Paul gets affirmed. Everything is good to go. I almost said everything is kosher. (laughs) They are agreed. And so anything else emanating out from Jerusalem that's not this true gospel of grace in Jesus Christ is a deviation. Both Paul, Peter, James, John all agree. They're so agreed that Paul receives the right hand of fellowship. It's kind of like what we did this morning as we welcomed Trevor and Kayla. We affirm them. We agree with the gospel they believe. We believe the same gospel. We're on the same team. We're on the same page. Paul says, just to be clear, only, verse 10, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The only thing that they asked of Paul, the only thing, was remember the poor. And Paul says, yep, doing it. They haven't added anything to him. So the gospel that he preaches is the gospel that Jerusalem preached Now, I don't know if this just sounds like a bunch of history that's unimportant to you, but it's really important for you because this is the means by which the gospel has been preserved for us. Let me just make a few kind of concluding uh, thoughts or applications, namely that the gospel indeed has been preserved for you. That's the center statement of this whole chapter. This whole section, so that the truth of the gospel, verse 5, might be preserved for you. Paul went to all this length to write this down, to defend himself, to defend the gospel, so that the gospel would be preserved. Because there is a real enemy, really trying to thwart the advance of the gospel, really trying to distort it, really trying to add things onto it that look really good, but if you add them on, it destroys the whole thing. Like just sprinkling a little poison on top of a cake that you can't even taste. It's that subtle. And it's that deadly. So the gospel needs to be defended. And it was through the God-empowered and relentless efforts of Paul that the gospel was preserved. Don't be surprised if the gospel needs defending. Don't be surprised if you hear from this pulpit or this church 
an advocacy for the true gospel and calling out of false gospels. Because we have a real enemy who is going to try to distort the very hope that we have. And so we need to look for where it's being distorted, where there's deviation, and we need to come back to the standard and the truth and defend the gospel and preserve it. Not that we have a revelation from Paul, but we have a revelation in the scripture of what the gospel is, and we have no liberty to make it other than that. So the gospel needs to be defended. In the 15th century, 16th century, there was the Protestant Reformation that was essentially over the gospel, over how you relate to God. Do you relate to God by means of Him counting you righteous in Christ, totally and completely received by faith alone? Or are you justified by God infusing righteousness into you that you then work out and are justified by your works? They're two different Gospels. The Reformation was not over insignificant, unsubstantial, periphery issues. Men and women gave their lives for the truth of the Gospel. It's not just during that time. William Tyndale, his story is well known. He translated scriptures into English because the common people could not read Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And so the gospel was distorted because they couldn't check it against the truth. And he was chased out of England, and the translations he did were tried to be confiscated and burned. William Tyndale did this so that people could be free from the enslaving laws of the Pope, he said at that time. Tyndale said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. Because he was bringing it back to the truth of the gospel. Not Christ and, but just Christ. Martin Luther, as he heard the practices of the Roman Catholic Church regarding indulgences as people were called to make donations in order to secure the forgiveness of their sins or to secure the forgiveness of sins of those who already died and are in purgatory. Luther defied that. And as he came to an understanding of the gospel, he said, I saw that God had given me the righteousness of Christ through faith. Christ suffered all the penalty for my sin on the cross. By faith, Christ's righteousness becomes my righteousness. That's the gospel. All of Christ's righteousness for you, given as a gift of grace, not of works, so that no one may boast. And when you are told that if you can pay some money to get your forgiveness, the gospel has been distorted. It's Christ or it's pay your money. It is not both. And Luther said, Christ alone can forgive sins. The Pope has no power to forgive or to free souls from purgatory. If he had such power, why does he not release everyone from purgatory at once? Why does he not do it free of charge? 
It's so easy to add things to the gospel. It can be the clothes that you wear or don't wear. It can be the words that you say or don't say. It can be the people you hang out with or don't hang out with. But you need to know the entirety of your salvation is in the true gospel, which is Christ's righteousness for you purchased at the cross. All of grace. I fear that we get so riled up with so many things in this world. We get riled up with politics. We get riled up with the economy. We get riled up with sports. But the fundamental place where there is real attack is the gospel. And that's where we need to have our interests keenly directed towards. The gospel needs to be preserved. The gospel for us has been preserved through corroboration. What I mean by that is when Paul went to Jerusalem and he met with the apostles there, he found that they believed the same thing. It is a dangerous thing to start believing something that nobody else has ever believed before. Don't do that. (laughs) Believe what believers have believed for all Christian history. Believe the true gospel. Get so familiar with the gospel. Know church history. Know the scriptures so well that you know what we have believed. So that when some deviation comes in, you can call it out for what it is. One gospel for all people. Peter had the gospel to go to the circumcised. Paul had the gospel to go to the uncircumcised, but it was the same gospel. That's why in the book of Revelation, you see before Christ bowing down people from every tribe and people and tongue and language because they're saved by the same blood of the same lamb. And there is no other way. They sing praises to the same lamb who was slain for them. Chapter 2, verse 16 of Galatians, Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's what we believe. We believe... The gospel needs to be defended. It's defended by corroboration. The gospel is preserved also through the fighting off of slavery. In chapter 2, verse 4, again, it says, Because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom. It doesn't really matter how glamorous the message sounds, how good the messenger looks, how reasonable or pleasant the message is. If it's a deviation from the gospel, every last one of those messages is a message that is trying to put you in chains. Anything that is not the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus, which sets captives free from sin, 
every other message. It can be sparkling with gold and diamonds. It is trying to put chains on you. It is trying to bring you back into slavery by your righteousness righteousness being from you rather than from Christ. And if your righteousness is from you, you fall short of that. And Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If you don't have the forgiveness of sin, you are a slave to sin. And if you don't have the message that forgives you of sin, then the only message you have is one that is trying to shackle you with your own guilt and condemnation. Everything else seeks to put you in chains. Jesus Christ came to set you free. Trust in him and in his gospel. Defend it as you need to. Let's pray. Father, your gospel is so good. It indeed has set us free. Those of us who have tasted it, we, we know that the burden of our sin, all the baggage that we have carried has been covered by the blood of Christ, has been taken off of us. We thank you for that gracious gift. And Lord, it's only our pride and the deceptions that come of us that would, would take us away from that and think that our own righteousness would count for something. Thank you for Christ's righteousness. Thank you that he was perfect. And though we were sinful, he would give us his credit. Thank you that he died on the cross and rose again and paid it all. Father, help us to be vigilant in defending the gospel from any perversions or deviations that would come to us. Lord, we don't want to be arrogant. We just want to receive the good news you've given us. Help us, Lord, not to think that we're better than those who are preaching a false gospel, but let us be vigilant to keep the gospel pure and to be thankful for what you've given us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.